we will dig into God's word. Father, thank you that you are our almighty God, our Father, our King, our Savior. And we come tonight by your power, by your spirit, seeking your wisdom and instruction and guidance in your word. Please remove all of those things which would distract us from receiving your word tonight. Help us to hold to a posture of worship as we continue to seek you. Please open our hearts and minds to hear you. We give you glory, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one true God who has been, is now, and forever will be unto the world's end. For Jesus' sake we ask. Amen. So, the couple weeks before two weeks ago, right, we saw Elijah defeating the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, uh, and him praying and rain coming, and then we see him in the following chapter, chapter 19, uh, Jezebel says, that's it, I'm going to kill you because you killed my prophets, and he runs, and chapter 19 is God dealing with Elijah, uh, you know, Elijah having a time to rest, um, and Elijah having uh, a snack and going for a really long walk and, and all the good stuff that came out of that chapter uh, with God eventually telling Elijah to go back to work. Now, in chapter 20, the first 30 verses are battles with Ben-Hadad and the Syrians uh, and Ahab and the Israelites. And uh, we went into a lot of detail there. Uh, uh, Ben-Hadad had asked for Ahab's loveliest wives and, and best-looking children, and he agreed. Uh, we had the idea that perhaps that was an attempt to get rid of Jezebel, uh, but it didn't work. So then Ben-Hadad asks for more, and Ahab then refuses, and a prophet um, comes to him and says, hey, you're going to win this fight. Go out and get him. So he does. He goes out and he gets him, and then the Syrians are like, well, here's the problem. Their God is the God of the hills, and we fought them in the hills. No wonder they won. Now, if we fight him in the valleys, their God can't be a God of the valleys. And we, we spend some time about the idea of localizing God, right? And pagans did that because they would localize God to a, to a shrine or to an idol or to a place like a, a grove of trees or a mountaintop. Um, but I think we do that sometimes because we live in our culture, and sometimes we think that perhaps God only dwells in the church, or perhaps God only dwells, you know, in that special camp we went to where we got saved. But the fact is, is He dwells in us. I was—I I always do this on Wednesdays. Uh, Ralph and I were having a conversation about the mysteries of Scripture and how there are things that we don't get to know. And uh, I was telling him, I promise we'll get to 1 Kings 21. I was telling him, I was in, uh, I'm, I'm reading through the book of Romans, and I'm reading the book of Romans differently. I'm, I'm going to take the whole book, reading it with the instructions we received in the prayer practice with Lectio Divina, which is you read the passage and you, you notice things, certain things that are highlighted to you. Then you reread the passage, focusing on those words or phrases that were highlighted. Then you pray the passage back to God, and then you just sit with it silently before him. And so uh, I've been doing this for about a week. I think I did I finish? I haven't finished chapter one yet. Um, so it's really cool for me because I've read the book of Romans many times. 
Uh, but as I was reading, um, in verse 18 and 19, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in right- unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And it goes on about how the invisible attributes of creation declare him, just like Psalm 19 says. And I was thinking of that, what may be known of God. Which means, right, implicitly, if there's things that can be known or may be known about God, that means there's things that can't. So we, we were having a discussion about that. And one of those things, and Paul talks about this mystery in Colossians, is the fact uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, we can all make a spiritual and mental assent to the fact that the body or that uh, uh, the Father and the Son dwell in us by the Holy Spirit. The God of the whole universe lives inside of us. But if you ask me how that works, or you ask me to explain it, I can't. It's a mystery. Paul said it was a mystery. And one of the things we came to is, is the people, uh, we were talking about a couple commentators, because when you read enough commentators, eventually you stop reading commentators. Because um, <laughs> what you find out is most commentators, not most, but a lot of commentators, they, they get this idea that they have to explain everything. All right, I'm writing a commentary on this book. I have to be able to explain every verse. But there's verses, there's passages, there's places. I don't understand. And what that makes me think is we weren't meant to understand it. And when you hear the people who come up with these, well, wackadoodle ideas about what it means, you're like, it can't possibly mean that. That's not consistent with the rest of Scripture, or that doesn't make any sense in the context of the passage. So I love coming along to a passage that I don't understand, and you guys have heard me do this. I'll put it in my notes and say, I don't know what this means. Right? There's, there's some possibilities, but I don't, I don't actually know what it means, and it's arrogance to think that we would. Well, that brings us back to the fact that God is what we call omnipresent. He doesn't dwell just in the hills. So when the battle came to the valleys, well, God wanted to show them that he wasn't just a God of the hills, so he wiped them out again. And then, of course, Ahab makes the, the, a treaty with Ben-Hadad, which God did not tell him to do. Um, and so I do find it interesting that we, we can't localize God. He's with us all the time. Now, if you're anything like me, if you look back on your life and you think of the fact that as a believer, God is always with you, there's going to be some memories that scare the tar out of you. You're like, he was there when I did that? He was inside me when I thought that? Yep. But it's also extremely comforting because there's never a time we're alone. We are always in the presence of God. It's um, Psalm, I believe it's Psalm, oh goodness. We're going to get to 1 Kings, I promise. I believe it's Psalm 116. I might be wrong. It might be Psalm 16, but I think it's Psalm 116. Um, I'm going to see if I can find it. Maybe it's not Psalm 116, or maybe it isn't. I'm just not finding it. Oh, it is Psalm 116, verse 9. Woohoo! I will walk before the Lord 
in the land of the living. It prompted in the Latin Vulgate the phrase Coram Deo, which literally means living before the face of God. It's a beautiful reminder that we are always in the presence of God. First Kings chapter 21, believe it or not, verse 1. And it came to pass after these things, so the, all the victories in chapter 20, and the judgment then that God pronounced upon him, that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near next to my house. And for it I will give you a vineyard better than it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab went to his house and threw a toddler fit. That's, that's probably what the Message Bible says when it says sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. So he lay on his bed, turned away his face, and would eat no food. Oh my goodness. Right? Yeah, it's just a three. This is a king of Israel. He just fought two major battles and defeated a nation that was ten times his own. Naboth won't give me the vineyard. Verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why are you throwing a fit? Why won't you eat? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite. I, mean, I have to say it in a whiny voice because it must have been how he said it. Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard or money or else if it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard. And he said, no, I won't give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, I can't believe I married you, you crybaby. That's not what she said, but it's what she was thinking. Uh, you now exercise authority over Israel. This is what she said. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name. Man, Jezebel was a piece of work. Sealed them with his seal and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king Take him then and stone him that he may die. So the men of his city, the elders and nobles who were, in, were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had said to them, and as, or as was written in the letters which she had sent. They proclaimed a fast, seated Naboth with high honor among the people, and two men, scoundrels, came in, sat before them, and the scoundrels witnessed against him. Uh, remember the word scoundrels in Hebrew means worthless men. And in the presence of the people saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Now, first off, that's a big problem. You can't blaspheme a king. He's not God. But, so they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones and he died. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive but dead. So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Oh my goodness. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, we read, You shall not bear 
false witness against your neighbor. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, we read, You shall not commit murder. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, we read, You shall not covet. Now, we don't always think about covetousness as a particularly terrible sin. Right? I, I, don't, I don't know about you. I can't tell you how many times a day I probably do this. Uh, you know, I'm driving down the street and I see a big fancy truck and I'm like, ooh, boy, that would, that would be nice. Or uh, right now we're being tortured a little. There's a really neat house right around the corner from ours that's for sale. I'm like, wow, it's such a cool little house. Four bedrooms, three bathrooms with the possibility of putting a, a studio apartment off the garage. The, the, the room is already there. It just needs the plumbing. And I'm going, man, it's only a million dollars. Hair under, 850. And I'm like, I'll just write a check. It'll bounce, <laughs> but I'll just write a check, right? Um, and, uh, but we don't always think about it. In Romans chapter 7, and you don't have to turn there, uh, but in Romans chapter 7, it's Paul's famous treatise on, you know, I don't do the things that I want to do, and the things that I don't do, that's what I find myself doing. So he says, I find a law at work within me. You know, so with my spirit, I serve the law of God. And with my flesh, unfortunately, right, I serve the law of sin. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God it's through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Now, he starts that off by talking about how the law is the reason we know that we're sinners. He goes on later in one of his epistles, I think it's First or Second Timothy, and he says that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. For a person who is a non-believer... Right? You, you can talk about sin. Right? We don't always like to do that, but it's true. What, we, we know what we're being saved to, but the good news is not just what we're being saved to, it's what we're being saved from. And we're saved from our sin, and we're saved from eternal condemnation and separation from God. And in that, he said, if the law hadn't told me not to covet, I wouldn't have known that I was covetous. And that seems pretty simple. Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't tell this. There's an episode of The Simpsons that I absolutely love. It's an episode, I like a lot of the episodes of The Simpsons. Please don't judge me. Um, <laughs> I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. Uh, but this episode, and, and I, my daughter may already know where I'm going, uh, but Homer wants to steal cable from his neighbor. But the opening of the episode is the Israelites in camp. And the Israelites are in camp while Moses is up on the mountain. And so this one guy walks over to a tent and he starts stealing stuff, right? And, and they're like, oh, wow. And, and then he talks to this other guy and, and he, I can't, their names are their sin, right? So he's, he's Homer the, the thief. And this other guy comes up and it's like, you know, Joseph the adulterer. And he's talking to him and he goes, oh, how are you doing? Oh, business is good lately, <laughs> you know. And, and, and Joseph the adulterer says, hey, give my regards to your wife. <laughs> oh, certainly I will. <laughs> you know, and this other guy's selling idols. And, and they're doing this. And Moses comes down and starts reading the commandments. Well, I get the one that no idols. And he's like, oh, man, I guess you're going to have to close up shop. Gets to the one about to adultery. And the other guy's like, ha ha, you know, you can't do that anymore. And then he gets to the one about theft or about or uh, covetousness or whatever it is and Homer does his dope right because that was his without the law we wouldn't know what covetousness was but because of the law right and we are forgiven 
It doesn't change, right? We are forgiven, so we no longer keep the ceremonial law. We don't, we don't make sacrifices. We don't have to have a temple. We don't need a priest to go before God on our behalf. We can come through our mediator, Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.5. Um, and we're no longer required to keep elements of the law in order to get saved or in order to be right before God. It doesn't change that we keep the moral law. Because I'm under grace and not under law, that does not give me the right to commit murder. And that's what we talk about when we talk about the moral law. It doesn't give me the right to replace God in my heart with an idol. It doesn't give me the right to lie or steal or commit adultery or so on and so forth. Um, But throughout Scripture, coveting leads to so much more. Colossians 3.5 calls coveting a type of idolatry. And we can think of all the other places in Scripture where this took place. Eve coveted being like God because of Satan's lie. And we're still paying for it. Adam coveted Eve over God. Did you ever think about that? That Eve was the first instance of idolatry in the Bible? At that moment, Adam chose his wife over his God. Sorry, babe. <laughs> I, don't, I hope I wouldn't do that. Uh, David coveted Bathsheba. This led to adultery and murder. Judas coveted money and betrayed Jesus. And there are many other examples. Um, oh, I just, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, they coveted accolades from the church. And the Holy Spirit killed them both. Hebrews 13.5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? <laughs> be content with such things as you have for he himself has said I will never leave you nor forsake you and that brings us a big circle back to what we were talking about just a bit ago we need to find our contentment in God or we will seek it elsewhere which leads to covetousness idolatry and a host of what I would call consequential sins right the sin of covetousness is this thing but it's what it leads to Maybe going really deep in debt to buy something that you can't really afford. Or maybe some sort of sexual immorality. Or maybe telling a lie. Or whatever it might be. It leads to consequential sins. But when we remember that we always live in the presence of God. We can be content with what we have because he's here. Now, does that mean you can't want something? I don't think so. You know, what I do think it means is that you don't allow it to turn into covetousness. And you don't allow it to turn into some sort of idolatry. So Ahab was sullen and displeased. The word means irritable and cranky and angry. Yes, it means he threw a hissy fit. So Jezebel has Naboth falsely accused and has him murdered. I think Ahab may have been unaware of her tactics at first. But I still think he was culpable. And I think at some point in time, Ahab has to stop letting his wife kill people. I'm just thinking, you know, he he needed to figure that out. But Naboth was a man of integrity. The law commanded that you do not let the inheritance of your family go to another family. And on top of everything else that Ahab did, upon Naboth's death, that vineyard should have gone to another family member. And Ahab took it. 
This was a sacred obligation both to the law and in their culture. Proverbs 11.3 says the integrity of the upright will guide them. Naboth was a man of integrity. But the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. And that's what happens to Ahab. And it's where we pick up in verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? Both were sins. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he said, Shut up. No. <laughs> I think that's what I would have said if I was Elijah. And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity, your children, and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. Verse 25, But there was none like Ahab, who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably, following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. Well, it's about time. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring this calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. So Elijah is sent to condemn Ahab for his guilt, makes a proclamation of his death, uh, makes a proclamation of Jezebel's death, makes a proclamation of the death of every child that Ahab had, but then particularly the male children, whether bond or free, and we get this little commentary that there was no one who was as evil as Ahab, and he was incited by his wife Jezebel. Now, um, boy, this really doesn't apply to anybody but the two guys in here who are already married. <laughs> I guess it could apply universally uh, to spouses or relationships in general or anybody listening. Um, right? You, you want relationships with people, especially those that are as close as a spouse, to be relationships that push you closer to Jesus. They don't push you closer to evil. I think that's pretty straightforward. Uh, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians that uh, do not be deceived. Um, bad company corrupts good character. And it's true. And upon hearing this death sentence, right, Ahab chose poorly. That's the point I'm getting at. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she was really good looking, but whatever the case was, it was a bad choice. What's that old song? Never make a pretty woman your wife. 
Or if you want to be happy for the rest of your life, never make a pretty woman your wife. From my personal point of view, get an ugly girl to marry you. The strangest things that come out in my messages. Have you never heard that song? Oh, you need to look it up. There's this one part where this, the, there's one guy there's one guy talking to the other guy. He goes, man, your wife is ugly. And the other guy goes, yeah, but she sure can cook. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Ahab should have listened to the song. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. I, the, Lord, forgive me. Um, it's like that, oh, uh, uh, the other song, the guy who did all the Toy Story music. Um, oh, it's lost. Anyways, he wrote a song about short people. Oh, yeah. Anyways. Upon hearing his death sentence. Let's get back to the scriptures and I'll stop quoting random songs. Uh, Ahab tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, sackcloth, and went into a period of fasting and mourning. And what's amazing about this is God took this humbling of himself, right? Ahab's humbling of himself, his repentance, and he delays the coming judgment. Now, I don't want you to think that this is wrong in some ways because Ahab's son was no better than his father. And he, he would have had a chance to do things right, but clearly didn't which we'll find out in, in Second Kings. Um, but what I find so incredible about this, God determined judgment. God is sovereign. And we know from Scripture that God is immutable. He doesn't change. Right? Sometimes you'll see that God repented of an action or he relented of an action. Um, and like uh, when God wanted to destroy the children of Israel, he said, I'll just kill them all, Moses, and I'll make a nation out of you. And Moses intercedes for them. And he says, okay. He says, God relented of what he planned to do. Same thing with Abraham. I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham prays, well, what if there's 50? What if there's 40? What if there's 30 righteous people? Right? And, and it brings up, again, something that I was reading in Praying Like Monks and Living Like Fools by Tyler Staten. Uh, is that we sometimes, because God is sovereign and his sovereign will is always going to be done, that we sometimes get the attitude that our prayers don't move him. But they do. Right? However you want to look at it, maybe God's heart was touched by his humbling. Maybe God, because he is merciful and patient, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. But whatever the case, God said, okay, I'm not necessarily going to let Ahab off the hook, but it's not going to come directly to him. And so when we were in chapter 20, we talked about the patience of God and we talked about the mercy and grace of God. And Ahab was about as far gone as a person could go. But it doesn't matter how far away from God a person is. No matter how bad the sin, how bad the influence there is no end to the mercy and grace of God. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, David discovered this for himself. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. When we come to God with a broken heart, he will never turn us away. John 1 16 and 17, 
From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's this phrase, grace upon grace, because what it implies is a continuous outflow of grace. Right? You can turn a faucet on, and you have a flow of water, but you turn it off. This is not that. It doesn't get turned off. It's a waterfall. It's a waterfall that has a source that never dries. Or like Gunnison, right? It, and, and even there, it's a bad comparison because the, the, the river can get low. But his grace, moment by moment, on into eternity, it's endless. And it's given to us as a free gift. Which is so, it's so amazing to me. One of the other things Ralph and I were talking about this morning, which is again something that we don't always think about, um, is that when a person comes to Christ, you know, maybe they, they come down to the altar, or they raise their hand, or they, they say the prayer, or whatever it is, but when that, that salvation is genuine, God was doing that work in their heart long before they walked down to the altar. <laughs> he was doing that work in their heart long before they raised their hand or they said their prayer, because they couldn't raise their hand or say the prayer until God was doing that work in their heart. And that's so incredible to me, when we, we read, I'm, I don't have any much to go here, so uh, when we read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved, by faith. And that is not of yourself, not of works, lest any man should boast, even the faith to believe is a gift. Now we still choose, right? And that's a sticky point for some people. Uh, we still choose to respond to that offer of grace. We respond to the work of of the, his spirit in our heart. Um, I actually warned somebody earlier this week, and it turned out good, but um, that I'm like, he's making this offer. Don't reject it. It's a bad idea. <laughs> and the person didn't. It was very cool. But that's the grace of God. And, and, and you know, we, we think about that sometimes. I know personally, I've, I've gone to places that I didn't think I could come back from. He brought me back anyway. I don't deserve that. And that's why it's grace. Next time, we'll see the end of Ahab's reign and life. And what I'm thinking I might do, and this is just a lie. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want it to be a lie. Uh, but what I was thinking would be fun to do is as we finish chapter 22 is just jump into 2 Kings chapter 1. Um, but you know as well as I do that that's probably not going to happen, especially since chapter 22 is 53 verses. So I'm not even going to pretend that that's going to happen. How's that sound? Um, but we'll, we'll get into that next week. Uh, keep in mind, I've got it in the bulletin for Sunday that we won't have Wednesday night on I think it's December 27th and January 3rd, the, the week of Christmas and New Year's, but and then we'll be back after that. But uh, until then, let's pray. Father, thank you for your endless grace that you'll never turn us away when we come to you, God, in repentance with a broken heart, no matter how far away we've gone. Help us to never use your grace as an excuse to sin. 
and help instead help us to bask in your grace in your grace upon grace moment by moment in our lives help us to always be aware of your presence and to live in that awareness to honor you quorum deo please be with us the rest of this week with all that we need to do and may you be glorified in jesus name amen